You're listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached during the online worship service of Central United Methodist Church, broadcast from Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to join us for our live worship experience through Facebook or Zoom every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Visit www.cumcballston.org for details. There, you can also learn more about our congregation, where we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. The scripture reading today is from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 13. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, Go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that their master needs them. He sent them off right away. Now this happens to fulfill what the prophets said. Said to daughter Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble and riding on a donkey, and on the colt, the donkey's offspring. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them. Then he sat on them. Now a large crowd sped their clothes right along the road. Others cut palm branches off the branches of trees and spread them on the road. The crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? They asked. The crowds answered, It's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those who were selling or buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, It's written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. The word of God from the people of God. Thanks be to God. David Foster Williams, in a 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College, said some very interesting things. He said, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And he went on to say why it's a good idea to worship a real God. And that's because it's pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. What he means, of course, is that we have a choice of worshiping God or worshiping idols, and we, like the people of Israel, often worship idols. Of course, they would worship idols in temples and with false uh, golden calves. We're too sophisticated, too secular, too rational to fall for that. But our ancient forebears worshiped other things as well. In today's scripture, we're at the very beginning of Holy Week. We have Jesus' joyful entrance into Jerusalem. He enters surrounded by cheering crowds and we might expect 12 very self-satisfied disciples. And what does Jesus do with this triumph? He goes straight to the temple and we have this scene of a riot. Then Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those who were selling and buying there. 
He pushed over tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a hideout of crooks. Why is Jesus doing this? This incident is sometimes pointed out as a demonstration that even Jesus Christ can lose his temper and turn to violence. I don't think that's a good way to read scripture, uh, particularly if it's used to excuse our own violent acts. Instead, what we have here drawn in stark relief is the choice between worshiping idols and worshiping God. It's the choice that David Williams was talking about. To get what's going on here, we need to understand the temple economy. Um, why were the money changers and the livestock vendors sitting there in the temple? It's because of the law of Moses. Under the law of Moses, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you could not bring money into the temple. You see, money in those days had on it the image of the emperor, the ruler, the prefect, whoever coined the money. And to bring that money into the temple was to bring before this holy place a craven image, and that's blasphemy. So you would have to change your money at the beginning of the temple, at the threshold, and get the temple money in return if you were to use it. And you had to use it. You had to use it to purchase what you were going to have the priest sacrifice on your behalfs. For after exchanging the money, you would then use it to purchase the sheep, the goat, the doves that you were required by law to offer to God. So that's why there were money changers, and that's why there was livestock vendors. Um, those who travel to foreign countries, some of us, we know what the currency exchange means. And for some reason, the bank always winds up on the top side of the currency exchange. Well, we can be pretty sure that's exactly what was happening at the temple. And the sale of the doves to be sacrificed, maybe they too had an inflated price. And these were required to be purchased for those who were coming there to fulfill their religious obligations. R recall when Jesus was an infant, Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph came presenting him to the temple as the firstborn, and with that had to sacrifice two doves. They had to pay the temple for those doves. So, what the temple worshipers had to face was a gauntlet of free market capitalism at work at the very entrance of the temple. You had to literally go through the secular world to pay for the privilege of becoming holy. And it seems strange, but apparently no one recognized this. No one really called out against this dichotomy. They went through this as business as usual. Nobody questioned this state of affairs, and then came Jesus. Are we really any different today in what we choose to worship? Let me be very clear. Our world of capitalism is diametrically opposed to everything Christianity stands for. In our capitalist society, you're worth only what you bring in as a value to someone else. 
Sorry, nothing personal. This is business. This forms the basis of a competition. We wind up competing against each other for success. This is strikingly true today in a new capitalism. It's a capitalism that treats the worker as someone who, instead of being an employee with a task to do, is instead a contract worker in competition with other workers and whose value is directly proportioned to what the worker can save the employer. I have a very good friend of mine who recently retired. He was the manager of a major um, manufacturing plant. He was obligated every quarter to show that his costs had gone down. And it didn't matter how many quarters he had driven the cost down. He was always required to drive his cost down. And that means either he succeeded or failed, and if he failed, he was out. Nothing personal. This is business. And for him to succeed, well, anyway, he's now retired, and he doesn't have to do that work anymore. I think that many of you hearing this sermon might have your own examples. In the privacy of your own home, raise your hand if you never ask or were never asked what you do for a living. Raise your hand if you never felt a twinge of self-guilt or self-satisfaction when you heard what someone else did for a living and what they were paid. I suspect there aren't too many hands raised in the air. Mine isn't. And that competition creates a world of scarcity. This is the bedrock principle of capitalism as we know it. The pie is only so big, you'd better get your share when and how you can. And the harder you work for your share, which you'll get at someone else's, someone else's expense, you make more money for the one who pays you. I first saw this in action some years ago. I was sent as a uh, federal uh, emissary from our Department of State to Kyrgyzstan just after it had come out from under the Soviet Union. I was part of a group. Uh, I represented the federal government. We had a member of our team who was uh, representing a major electric utility and two members from the financial sector. While we were there, we had a chance to look at a museum. It's lovely. They had a gift shop. And the utility executive was looking at these two earrings, these pairs of earrings, and deciding, should I buy them or not for my wife? And he, he told me, he was questioning that, and the other guys were with us. He went back and forth. Anyway, he circled around, he decided to buy them. When he went to buy them, he found out they'd been sold. Now, we were the only four people in that museum, except for the folks who lived there. One of the other people had purchased the earrings, and offered to sell it to him at an inflated price. The utility executive, I think, very wisely said, no, thank you. This is free market capitalism pressed to a terrible place. These three elements, the three legs on which capitalism rests, of self-worth determined by someone else, competition and scarcity, are directly opposed by Christianity. Instead of having our self-worth determined by someone else, all of us are loved exactly the same. We are loved for who we are, 
We are loved fully, and we all have the same worth, the worth of Jesus Christ on the cross. Instead of competing for someone else's favor in order to survive, all of us are saved and none of us need to fail for someone else to succeed. And instead of a world based on scarcity, we've been promised life and a life lived more abundantly. We've been promised that one gift that grows in us, the more we give it away, we've promised love. Stated in its baldest terms, capitalism, if we give ourselves over to it, if we allow it to choose for us what is important in life-giving, is idol worship. It's worshiping a God that will eat us alive. That this is idol worship, pure and simple, was made very clear to me in our last few days. In these days, we've seen some real economic hardship. We've seen it beginning to develop. We know it will get worse. Listen to what some are now saying. This is much larger than the stock market, said Jonathan Ashback in TheFederalist.com. Yes, it seems harsh to ask whether the nation might be better off letting a few hundred thousand people die. But if the alternative is a full-blown economic depression, leaving tens of millions jobless, broke, and hungry, is it really callous to wonder how long we can continue to live huddled away in fear? Mr. Brett Stevens in the New York Times makes a similar claim. It simply is not sustainable to keep 330 million Americans at home that long. At some point, the trade-off of public health and economic survival will become a pressing concern. Reuters, the English news source, summarized the political question, and I'm quoting. Elected U.S. politicians entrusted with public welfare are making calculations centered around the question, how many possible preventable deaths are acceptable as weighed against millions of jobs lost and trillions of dollars or economic output forgone? Let's be very clear. In these voices, we hear the cry for a human sacrifice on the altar of the market. It's a human sacrifice measured in sickness and death and fear. And we see this, the workings of the false premise of scarcity and competition and claims of fear, for these are false choices. They are the false choices that are always created by a system based on scarcity and fear. I think this pretty well demonstrates the sort of idol worship we're capable of. And if our history shows anything, if scripture teaches us anything, when we worship idols, we get into a lot of trouble. So what do we do now? What are we to do with this choice between public safety and market capitalism? First, as Christians, we must recognize that this is a false choice. This is a lie. Instead, we have a different choice. We can practice the Christian act of gratefulness. Christy Nelson describes this gratefulness as treasuring life and one another. It's this treasuring that gives rise to compassion, kindness, forgiveness, and empathy. Richard Rohr puts it this way. Time is limited and experiences are fleeting, so we'd better treasure deeply what we have now and live more fully into what really matters. Today, in this strange time, we have a Lent to remember. 
Now, usually come Lent, we have to figure out what to give up. Now, do we give up chocolate? Do we give up fine dining? Do we give up liquor, wine, um, movies? Not this year. This year, we, all of us, are in a Lent, giving up being able to touch and hug friends and family, giving up being free to come and go as we please, giving up our public worship, some giving up our livelihoods, giving up our feelings of security. As Christians, we've been preparing all our lives for this moment. As Christians, we're given to be able to see the world as it really is. Gone is the veneer of a false reality that we are in control, that any human agency is ever in control. Today, we've been given a gift to be able to see and to feel and to participate in what really matters. We've been given a precious gift, a precious opportunity in our house arrest. Gifts aren't always meant to be enjoyed, but gifts do mean that with them comes opportunity to act. You see, Paul was given the gift of teaching the Gentiles, some gift. Look how he describes his life as an apostle gifted with beatings, imprisonment, shipwreck, disappointment, and discouragement. We've been given this gift of this time and this place, each of us in our own way to have with this gift opportunity to respond as Christians, to practice the Christian acts of connection and prayer and, and yes, Sabbath rest. For some, this means getting food and money and supplies to people in need. For some, this means reaching out to people by any way possible, just as I'm reaching out to you now. For some, it means prayer in ways and forms and times never before done. And for all of us, it's a time of reflection. Now, don't get me wrong. We are forced to face what we have worked so hard to escape and to avoid. We're forced to face those times when, when we can't go to work when we so much wanted to, and in doing it, perhaps avoiding family relationships. We're forced to give up things that we've done to escape other things, like being alone. We're forced into a new quiet. For some, this is the first time that we've been forced to live quietly, and this can be very hard to do. For some, this is the first time we've been forced to be alone, and this can be very hard and scary. Where in this new life, in this enforced monasticism, can we find our opportunities to grow, to grow as Christians? Henry Nouwen posed the question that each of us must answer in our life. To whom do I belong? To God or to the world? And we have this marvelous gift and opportunity to confront that question and answer it. As Christians, let us remember in this very special and very long Lenten time that we've chosen to belong to God. Let me close with a prayer. It's Psalm 46. Now, the city that's mentioned in this psalm today, when you hear this city or read the psalm on your own, it's our hearts, both singly and together, that's the city of God. God is our refuge and strength, a helper close at hand in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should rock, though the mountains fall into the sea.
even though its waters rage and foam, though the mountains tremble by its waves. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. There is a river whose streams give joy to God's city, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within. It cannot be shaken. God will help it at the dawning of the day. The nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms are shaken. He lifts up his voice. The earth shrinks away. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come consider the works of the Lord, the deed he has done on the earth. He puts an end to wars on the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted among the nations. I'm exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Amen.